Father, it is always a wonderful thing to gather together in your name with your people to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And part of the the difficulty of knowing you for a long time, of being familiar with the scriptures and the scriptural story is that these things become familiar to us and, and depreciated in our estimation. It's easy for us to take for granted your glorious triumph, to take for granted the salvation that we have in Christ our Lord, to take for granted, as Paul said, that we have been translated into the kingdom of light, that we have been made sharers in the life of the living God by sharing in Christ Jesus by your spirit, and that together we are made into the sanctuary of the living God. Your purpose, Father, to sum up everything in the creation in Christ is a glorious thing, and I pray that it would never become mundane or trivial to us, but that as we continue to walk with you, as we continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as we continue to strive to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, that that these truths and our share in them would become all the more glorious, all the more compelling. Father, we pray that you will help us to be truly a gospel people, that we will be like the Apostle Paul who never got over the marvelous, glorious, transcendent work of Israel's God. And he devoted his life to proclaiming those excellencies, proclaiming that triumph, And he devoted his days to walking out, to manifesting in his own life that triumph, the glories of being a new creature in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we do bow our hearts and our minds before you, and we do acknowledge your unfathomable goodness, not just to us individually, but to your creation that you came to us in our hopelessness, that you came to a world groaning in its captivity, in its exile, and you broke those chains. You liberated the captives. Help us to be livers out of that good news and to be proclaimers of it, not just in our words, but in our thoughts, in our hearts, in the orientation of our affections. And Father, as we consider again now this this great design that has become yes and amen in Christ our Lord, minister to each one, teach us, build us up, encourage us, strengthen us in faith, form Christ ever more fully in us by your good spirit. We do ask these things for your sake and for the sake of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, as we saw in our last consideration, it it was really an amazing thing and and a very marvelous providence that God would raise up a pagan king, Cyrus the Persian king, to liberate uh, the sons of Israel, the, the Judean exiles, and allow them to go back and even make provision for them in terms of finances, resources to rebuild the, the temple in Jerusalem. 
even his own acknowledgement that this was the God of Israel that he was acting on behalf of. And then uh, in the next century that, that you would have more exiles return to Judea and restore the walls of Jerusalem, restore the integrity of the city. And yet the prophets who spoke during that time were clear that this hasn't really ultimately fulfilled what God has promised. It's important Remember, we considered last time Haggai's words to the exiles, keep building, don't be discouraged. It's important to rebuild this sanctuary, but recognize this isn't the end goal. This is a step in the process, but God has more in mind than this. Those things only remedied Israel's physical exile, but their physical exile was simply the uh, testimony, a way of uh, like an exclamation point on the fact of their actual exile, which was their relational exile from God. We saw how before Jerusalem fell, God's glory departed from his sanctuary in Ezekiel. The Lord departed from his people before he sent them away into exile. But there was the promise that he would return, the promise that he would restore them. And what I want us to do to consider today is that actual fulfillment of the word of deliverance from exile, the, the actual deliverance that the uh, physical return from exile only uh, prefigured, only set the stage for. So as we considered that idea of Israel's deliverance from exile, we saw that God would come as a redeemer, we read that even this morning in chapter 59 of Isaiah. Exile requires redemption because exile is captivity. It's bondage and therefore liberation comes through redemption. The payment of a suitable valuation to purchase out that uh, captivity or purchase out that, that form of bondage, whatever it may happen to be. So Yahweh promises that he will return as redeemer and healer. We saw that for all the rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the city, uh, the Lord's absence was conspicuous. He didn't return, but there was the promise that he would return. And specifically what the prophets say is that he would return in connection with this messianic servant. That messianic servant, hopefully at this point we recognize that that is the branch of David, the son that was covenanted to David, the son through whom God would establish David's house and throne and kingdom, and the son of David through whom Yahweh's own house would be built. This messianic servant somehow would be the agency through which Yahweh would return. He would end the exile. He would put all things right. And then he would see this kingdom promise to David established. And then the last introductory note about that is that this restoration of David's kingdom wouldn't be simply the reviving of the former order of things. And we'll see that more. But that's an important point, even for many Christians today who are looking to the revival of David's kingdom in a quasi-Old Testament form. 
an, an Israelite kingdom centered around Jerusalem with a physical temple and even the revival of temple ordinances and sacrifices, that sort of thing. Basically a reviving of the former form of David's kingdom. This would be something that would transcend that. It would correspond to it, but it would not be identical to it. So that's what I want to consider today in, in these three segments that you have in the notes. First of all is this kingdom as it was to be an everlasting kingdom. Clearly that sets it apart from David's former kingdom because that kingdom went away, didn't it? It went away in its physical existence. It went away in its dominion. It went away even in the kingship in David's own house, the severing of the Davidic kingship. This is to be an everlasting kingdom. What God is promising to David will have an everlasting quality to it. And as this is a different sort of kingdom, it will have a different sort of king. This son of David who will arise and take the throne will be a greater David. He will be something more than, than David was. And then the last thing is how this kingdom will establish uh, a realm and a, and a manner of dominion that will transcend the present form of things, a new creational kingdom. If we say, okay, well, if it's true that the scriptures say that when God establishes this kingdom promise to David, it will be more than what simply happened with the exiles returning to Judea, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, if it's to be more than that, then what do the scriptures say it's to be? What was Israel looking for? If we want to put it in a different light, what were the Jewish people looking for in their expectation and hope of this renewed kingdom, this restored kingdom? What were their uh, hopes? What were they taking from the scriptures as expecting? So in the first instance, then, as I say, unlike the Israelite theocracy, the kingdom that David established, this renewed kingdom would endure forever. It, too, would be Yahweh's kingdom. Remember, David's kingdom was Yahweh's kingdom. David presided over the Lord's kingdom as God's regal son. And that same dynamic would continue in the revived kingdom. It, too, would be Yahweh's kingdom. And it would be governed by, ordered by, this covenant relation between God and his people. The kingdom that David established and presided over was the kingdom that God had established with the Abrahamic people through the Abrahamic covenant, ratified with Israel at Sinai. It was ordered by covenant relation, and that would be the same thing here. Israel's kingdom, the Israelite kingdom depended upon Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. And that's precisely the reason it failed. As we've seen, even as we've been going through the Old Testament, the reason for the dissolving of the kingdom, the reason for uh, the kingdom, the reason for God's departure, the reason for the exile of the people was that they had broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to the relationship that God had established by covenant. So the implication then, if this renewed kingdom is to be an everlasting kingdom, it means that the faithfulness to the covenant will be unbroken. There will not be the violating of the covenant. There will not be the breaking of the covenant. 
There will be faithfulness to the covenant relationship if this kingdom is to persevere. And Moses spoke about that day. Remember when he said, after the blessings and the cursings have come upon you, then God will arise and he will give you a new heart. Ezekiel spoke in the same way. The Lord will arise and he will take your heart of stone and he will give you a heart of flesh. He will cause you to know him. He will cause you to walk with him. We saw even in our reading today this idea of of God establishing his Torah in a way that the people own it in their very being. So the renewal of the covenant relationship in which this kingdom would be restored, this kingdom promised to David concerning the son to come from him, that renewal of the covenant relationship would see the renewal of the covenant people. Think about the readings again today. God is saying you will be a different sort of people when I cleanse you, when I establish you. They would become in truth the image children that the covenant specified. The law of Moses was the covenant by which God established the relationship with the children of Israel. He is their father. They are his covenant sons and daughters. And they were to be faithful sons and daughters. And in that faithfulness, they would bear witness to the nations of their covenant Lord and Father. And in that way, minister the blessing of God to all the earth's families. That was their calling under the covenant to be faithful children, image children. So that when you see the son, you see the father, just as Jesus proclaimed of himself. That's the sense then in which this renewed covenant would be new. And there's a lot of discussion in the church about old covenant, new covenant. Is it the same covenant, the one covenant of grace? Is it a new covenant according to grace? The old covenant was according to law. There's a lot of discussion. And I think fundamentally, if we get at these issues, then that question answers itself. This is a new covenant in the sense that it is a renewing and a perfecting of the actual thing that the covenant specified. In other words, it will be the realization in truth and perfection of all that God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants had purposed, embodied, and prescribed. Jeremiah 31, if you want to turn there, that's one of the passages that we find in which um, this phrase new covenant is actually used. And obviously when we went through the epistle to the Hebrews, we saw new covenant come up a lot, right? But this is the lens through which the, the Hebrews writer was thinking, and it's the lens through which we need to think as well. But in Jeremiah 31, and this is said in the context of the impending Babylonian captivity, the desolating of everything, essentially the, the going away of the whole covenant relationship that, that Israel had had with God, exile. He says, behold, days are coming. This is verse 31, chapter 31 declares Yahweh when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the covenant at Sinai. What we call the old covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. There's where the failure of the covenant came. Yahweh was faithful. They were unfaithful. They were adulterers. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah, law, Torah, my instruction within them. Not written on tablets of stone, but within them. On their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. This was the Abrahamic promise. This takes us all the way back, right? God is establishing a people for himself. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he says this will actually see that purpose realized. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. See, they didn't really know him under the former covenant. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. All the sons of the covenant will know him because his instruction will be graven in their very beings. They will know him in the inner man. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what God is promising in this new covenant is not something whole cloth totally different, but that what the covenant with Abraham ratified with Israel was calling the people to be, that calling, that vocation, that reality will finally be realized when this covenant renewal takes place. And that explains then how this new covenant in its administration would be defined by righteousness. We saw that idea of righteousness coming up over and over again in our readings today. Well, once again, righteousness has to do with rightness, a thing's conformity to its actual nature and function. And nature and function go together, right? Form follows function. Human beings are the image and likeness of God because of the design for which they were created. Just like a chair has the form that it has because of what it's intended to do. It doesn't look like a lawnmower because it's not designed to mow grass. Well, human beings are the image and likeness of God because of the function for which God created them. And that conformity of a thing to the truth of what it is and what it was made to do, the truth being defined by the creator himself, not our notions, not society's notions, not whatever it happens to be, but what God created that thing to be, conformity to that, in other words, to think the way God thinks and live out our existence the way God understands us to be, that is righteousness, It's not a moral category at bottom. It's an ontological category. It's a way of being that manifests itself in morality and ethics and those sorts of things. Uh, But it's a way of being. And so Israel's covenant with God prescribed their sonship on behalf of the creation. Israel's righteousness under the covenant was its conforming to the definition and the prescription that the covenant set in front of them, what it would mean for Israel to live out its sonship authentically on behalf of the world. And so this covenant renewal would see realized the righteousness of that sonship. And at the center of all of that, the prophets situate this person of the messianic figure 
at the center of all of this definition of covenant renewal and righteousness sits this messianic person. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, they're not entirely clear about how exactly this messianic figure would figure into all of this establishing of the kingdom and and all of the details of that. That becomes clear with the coming of the Messiah. But there are two, at least two, and I want to mention what I consider to be the two main things or dynamics of this renewal that the prophets associate this messianic figure with. The first is the return of Yahweh as Israel's redeemer. You've heard me say before, Christians often in this this quest to prove the deity of Jesus, they want to try to point to a verse that says, I am God. But the main way in which the, the Gospels and the New Testament more broadly establish the deity of Jesus of Nazareth is the way that the Old Testament promised this messianic figure, which is that he embodies in himself Yahweh's return to Zion. He is the Lord returning to his people, returning to Zion to to renew and to restore. That's the way in which the scripture speaks to his deity. So the first thing associated with this messianic figure then and this bringing in of this promised kingdom is that it associates very closely and intimately the return of Yahweh to Zion with this person, with this messianic servant. And then the second piece of that is it associates him with the priestly remediation of Israel's guilt and uncleanness, which themselves are key to this idea of redemption, as we talked about last time, right? Redemption is liberating, paying the price of liberation or deliverance from captivity. Well, that captivity was driven by relational unfaithfulness. So the problem of relational unfaithfulness has to be dealt with. That's where this priestly mediation comes in. The way in which the captives are set free comes through the restoring of the relationship, which itself comes through the satisfying of the problem of alienation. And Isaiah's prophecy, particularly in this last uh, third of his uh, book, beginning at chapter 40, where we have the unfolding of the servant songs, the last of which is chapter 53, the very familiar passage. But the servant songs talk about these things that I'm mentioning here. So somehow the prophets say this individual, this messianic figure would address both aspects of the exile, Yahweh's exile and Israel's exile. He would affect Yahweh's return to Zion as redeemer, in other words, ending God's exile from his people, but in order to then liberate the captive people and their exile from him. He would bring together both covenant parties, but in the true and the ultimate sense. He wasn't just going to bring Israel back to a place. And Yahweh wasn't just going to, in a sense, return to a place. But what was going to happen is reconciliation of the relational estrangement. God, through this messianic figure, would resolve the alienation through his own priestly intercession. And that's woven into these servant songs as well. Obviously, our minds probably turn to Isaiah 53. 
So this kingdom was to be a kingdom that would see the relationship between God and his covenant people healed and restored in the truest, fullest, ultimate sense and in the permanent sense so that this kingdom that he reestablishes becomes everlasting. No more violation of the covenant. But that new sort of kingdom requires a new sort of king. And the scriptures associate that king with the covenant son of David. I'm giving you lots of scripture in these notes that you can look at, and we're not going to look at all of those. But this covenant son of David, the branch of David, is that new king who is to come. David was the great prototype of that king, including even the priestly quality. We talked about how David was the only king in Israel that was able to function in a priestly role uh, to God's pleasure. Uzziah did it and he was struck with leprosy. Saul did it and God took the kingdom from him. Only David functioned, it doesn't mean he was a priest, but he functioned in a priestly capacity and it was pleasing to the Lord. In fact, that priestly function of David was in installing Yahweh on his throne on Mount Zion, remember? Bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. Very important in its significance. So this priestly work of this king is very important, as we've already noted, even in bringing Yahweh and his people back together, ending the exile that involves both God and, and his covenant people. In Zechariah then, and we've hinted at this, there's also added into that depiction a couple of other important considerations. The first is that that person's regal and priestly ministration, this branch of David that person will be the one who will rebuild Yahweh's sanctuary. Remember the promise to David was, this son will build a house for me. Well, now under Zechariah, centuries later, God reveals that, that this branch of David will build a house for him. He will build the Lord's sanctuary, but he will do so as a priest on his throne. But that action in crowning the high priest and then Zechariah giving his interpretation of that, behold the branch, he will build the house of the Lord. He will do so as a priest upon his throne. That carried with it a startling implication, which is that God was going to merge the kingship and the priesthood in that branch. David served in a priestly function in a very limited way, but God is now saying this branch of David, this royal branch of David, will actually be a priest. He won't just do some priestly work. He will be a priest, an enthroned priest. And this harkens back to Psalm 110. Remember the Melchizedekian Psalm of David, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So already the prophets were saying, when this son of David comes, when God does this work of restoring the relationship between him and his people when he returns from exile, when his house is rebuilt, when the people are liberated and regathered to him, then he will have this king begin to build his house for him as an enthroned priest, the merging of the priesthood and the kingship. And that in itself signals the end of the Israelite covenant structure. We're getting back to what I said earlier. This would not be just the reviving of the Israelite theocracy. This would not be the reviving of that 
system of that kingdom. Why not? Because the Israelite covenant, the covenant at Sinai, established an unbridgeable chasm between the priesthood and the kingship. There couldn't be a king-priest in Israel. As I say, David did some priestly ministration, but he wasn't a priest. He couldn't be a priest. He was of the tribe of Judah. That was the royal tribe. God had given the priesthood to the the Levites, specifically to Aaron, who was a Levite. Levi and Judah were brothers. You can't be related to two brothers, right? One or the other or neither of them. So you couldn't have a king priest in Israel because they were of different tribes. Now God is saying he's going to merge the kingship and the priesthood together. And Psalm 110, a psalm of David, hints at that and associates it with a different sort of priesthood. Remember in Hebrews, we saw that in chapter 7. He picks up that theme of Jesus' priesthood and he says it's of a different order. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He was a son of David. If he uh, were to be a priest, it would be an illegitimate thing. If he were to be a priest according to the order of the former covenant, because that was reserved for the Levites. So what's his conclusion? He says a change of priesthood means a change of covenant. So there is to be an alteration of the covenant relation between God and his people. The Lord would, this individual who would come would build the Lord's house as a king priest, but uh, as king over a kingdom that would fall outside of the Israelite covenant. It would be a different sort of covenant order. So the renewal of the covenant relationship would involve a fundamental change to the covenant itself. What was that change? Old covenant, gone away, new covenant, Something totally different. That was law. This is grace. We're doing something different. Or is it just the one covenant of grace, exact same thing, just a different administration? Or is it something other than that? And I think what the scriptures show us is that this new covenant is not the doing away of the old covenant with something whole cloth different. It is the transforming of the covenant relationship through fulfillment. And as you've heard me say through the years, this is exactly what Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, I didn't come to abrogate the law, but to fulfill it. Not the least jot or tittle in the law will pass away until all is fulfilled. I've come to fulfill all of it. None of it is passing away. Heaven and earth would pass away before anything in God's covenant could pass away. It's not passing away. I'm fulfilling it. And I'm fulfilling it not in the sense that I'm keeping a bunch of rules and regulations, the Ten Commandments or whatever. I'm fulfilling it in that I am living out in myself the the sonship, the uh, covenant life and faithfulness that the covenant specifies. I am in myself the son that the covenant is actually pointing to. So David's branch would fulfill the regal and priestly vocation of human sonship, which the covenant prescribed. We saw that all the way back in the creation account. Man is image son to be or image bearer to be image son. That's a regal and a priestly function. 
That's why even the New Testament says we are made to be a kingdom of priests. Israel was a regal priesthood, right? A kingdom of priests. And we are priests and kings to our God. David's branch would fulfill that vocation that the covenant prescribed, but such that his faithfulness would bring about the renewal of the entire covenant household. In that son of Abraham, Israel would be liberated and restored to become Israel in truth. That's Isaiah 59 through, or 49 through 53, as well as others of the prophets. So a new sort of king presiding over a new sort of kingdom in which the subjects, the citizens of the kingdom, are related to God according to a new covenant relation that fulfills the covenant relation that God established in the first instance with Abraham and his seed. So the house then that this individual is to build, promised again to David in the Davidic covenant, affirmed then again in Zechariah 6 and throughout the prophets, when God returns in connection with this messianic figure, this individual will somehow cleanse, rebuild, restore God's dwelling place so it becomes a fit habitation for Yahweh to again inhabit his sanctuary. But the prophets present that house as God's ultimate dwelling place. When he returns, he will dwell there forever. You saw that even a little bit in Micah 4. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will become the chief of the mountains. All the nations will stream to it. This becomes a settled reality. When Yahweh returns and again takes up his place in his sanctuary, it will be forever. And so that suggests that this house that the branch of David would build will transcend the second temple that the exiles had constructed. We read that in Haggai the last time, right? It's important, keep building, keep building. But there will be a glory associated with this temple that will transcend the temple itself. In this place, the Lord will give peace. The messenger of the covenant will come. Yahweh will return to this temple. And in this way, there will be the establishing of a sanctuary and a dwelling of God with his people that transcends that temple. And I've given you a whole string of citations here that show that this sanctuary that would be built through this Davidic king is something more than just the physical structure in Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem temple, which was the seat of the Lord's throne, was the focal point of David's kingdom. And so in the same way, this new sanctuary to be built would be the focal point of the kingdom that would be associated with it. And if that sanctuary represents the perfecting of God's relationship with his people, which it does through complete and abiding reconciliation, then the kingdom associated with that new sanctuary shares the same characteristics. And that's what the scriptures show. This renewed kingdom will be defined by the perfect intimacy of covenant God and people. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's that Abrahamic formula. I will be your God, you will be my people. In truth, in totality. Sons being sons in such a way that, again, as Jesus said, to see me is to see the Father. When you see the Son, you see the Father. That's the destiny of each one of us that's in Christ. When you see me, you see the Father. The glory of God that is in our faces reflected. 2 Corinthians 3. So this new kingdom would see 
perfect intimacy between the covenant God and Father and his covenant children, the subjects of the kingdom. And in that way, it corresponds to it being a kingdom defined by righteousness. A human community conformed to its created nature and function. And if the sons of the kingdom are righteous in that way, then that kingdom must extend to embrace the entire created order. Not the bounds of the Middle Eastern region from the Tigris or Euphrates River down to the Mediterranean Sea to the Nile River. No, the entire created order. Why? Because man was created image bearer to be image son. Again, a regal and priestly being created to administer God's relationship with his creation. This is what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. So if the divine human relationship is rightly ordered, so is the creator-creation relationship. The fall brought estrangement between God and his image bearers, which estranged God from the rest of the creation. Exile is a creational thing, not just a human thing, not just an Israel thing. The whole creation was exiled. That's what the curse is about. And so the undoing of that involves the ending of human exile, the restoring of the divine human relationship. And when that happens, then the creation is also brought back into the equation. So the kingdom that God uh, has promised to David, the kingdom that the prophets are holding out as yet to come, It has God and his human subjects living in perfect intimacy. And that kingdom would find the whole creation experiencing that intimacy. And so the prophets spoke of the messianic kingdom in the language of new creation. Think again about Isaiah 11, the harmony that's reintroduced, right? The wolf and the lamb laying down together, the, uh, the child playing by the hole of the cobra. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The reconciling of even creation, intercreational enmity that we see in the world all around us. Shalom will be restored. The harmony of all things under the, their ultimate harmony with God himself. If you flip over to Hosea 2, we can see this language a little bit, and I know I've alluded to this before. But here's where God talks about uh, Israel as a harlotrous wife who has left him. And he says, I, I have abandoned you. I've set you, sent you away. I've given you over to your other lovers, but now I'm going to pursue you. Verse 14 of chapter 2, I will allure her. Zion, Israel, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. I will give her her vineyards from there. The valley of Achor is a door of hope. She will sing there as in the days of her youth when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares Yahweh, that you will call me Ishi, my man, my husband. You will no longer call me Baali, my Baal, my Lord in that pagan sense. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by their names anymore. In that day, I will make a covenant for them on their behalf with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. 
I will make a covenant with the creation on their behalf. I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land. I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness, in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares Yahweh. I will respond to the heavens. They will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, to the oil. See the renewing of the creation and its harmony with man. I will sow her for myself in the land and have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And then the language of Amos 9, God says, behold, days are coming Well, verse 11 of Amos 9. In that day, I will raise up David's fallen booth and wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. No, dist- it's, it's poetic language, but it's, it's talking about the profusion and abundance of the creation. The plowman will overtake the reaper. The treader of grapes will overtake him who sows seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Creational renewal. And in Isaiah's prophecy, even the, the referring it to the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the created order, the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. And then the the word in Isaiah's prophecies, behold, I make a new heavens and a new earth, a renewing of the creation. So in summary, then, the kingdom promised to David would be defined by the full resolution of exile. That's the fundamental issue that the scriptures say the Messiah would address, that God would address through his Messiah. That kingdom would see Yahweh end his own exile and return to Zion as Israel's redeemer, thereby ending the exile of the covenant household and regathering it to himself. But because Israel's exile was only a narrow expression of mankind's exile that originated in Eden, God would return as Israel's redeemer, but with an eye to the entire human race whom Israel's election and restoration were to serve. Israel was to be restored so that she could fulfill her vocation on behalf of all the nations of the earth. So God was going to liberate and recover his covenant people, but in order that they should proclaim his liberation to all the world's captives, thus fulfilling their covenant vocation. As I've said so many times, this is what the early church was motivated, why they were motivated at the very beginning to go out an Israelite church. They, they were Jewish believers and proselytes, but they saw now if we are the beginning of a recovered Israel, we need to be about the global mission. That's what Israel's vocation was all about. And when the creator father and his image children were fully reconciled, then the creation's exile would also come to an end. 
as Paul puts it in Romans 8, the creation's agonized groaning as it still languishes in its bondage to the curse, that groaning would turn to exultation and celebration when at last the creation sees the sons of God revealed in the glory that they share with the unique son. That's Romans 8. So the kingdom promised to David and proclaimed by the prophets is the creation's realized perfection. If we want to say, what is this restored kingdom? What is the kingdom that God promised? What was Israel waiting for? What, what is it that we should be thinking in terms of the, the coming of the kingdom in the Messiah and where this is going? It's about the creation being perfected. It's realized renewal and perfection. That was the destiny for which God brought it into existence. So it, that is the kingdom in which all creation is summed up in David's son and David's God is at last and forever all in all. That's what this is all about. And so the physical exile and the physical recovery from exile only were a harbinger of what was to come, a foretaste. But the prophets kept saying, this isn't it. When God actually arises and does this work of renewal, this is what he'll do. And when we think about Jesus coming, we think about his work, we think about what it is that he accomplished, what it means to be saved, what it means to be Christians, what's happening in the world around us, where all this is going. This is the lens through which we need to think about those things. Well, let me close in prayer. And then this last song, I I don't know if you all got a chance to listen to it, but another ancient, this text goes back to the fourth century as well. Um, the, the tune that's associated with it is in the form of, called Plain Song, which was a, a um, uh, acapella chanting. goes back at least to the 13th century. Uh, so it was actually written to be sung in that sort of plain song form. We'll have some accompaniment with it. But uh, there's actually about eight or nine total stanzas to this but um, I couldn't find any versions of it that have all eight of them in there but once again these lyrics go back to the fourth century so they're very much a part of the early church's life and thinking and as we sing it uh, think about these lyrics in the light of what we've talked about today let it kind of close out our worship in that way let me pray uh, to close us and then we'll we'll finish up with this song Father, as always, I pray that you will help each one to digest these things, to metabolize these things, and have them be graven into the very fabric of their being. These are the the truths that define who we are as human beings, what it means to bear the name Christian, to be those who are named by the name of Christ, This is what it means for us to understand a truly human existence and what it is that you've called us to be and to do in this world. These are the things that tell us even the meaning of the world around us and how we ought to perceive its groaning and its longing, the struggle and the the cursing of the ground that, that we see in in every way all around us in this world. But the sense of hope and expectation of where this is all going and what it will mean that 
in the day when Christ is revealed and we are revealed with him in glory, in that day we will see your intent to sum up everything in the Messiah and to yourself, Father, become all in all as the triune God. The whole creation becoming sacred space, the whole creation becoming the sanctuary of our God, built upon human beings as living stones in the living stone that is Christ our Lord, the the foundation stone. So I pray that these things would encourage us, that they would inform us, that they would compel us, that they would drive the way that we think about our lives, our priorities, our orientation, our ministration to one another, our ministration to the world around us, in the people that we encounter, the circumstances that you put in front of us. Father, help us to be a faithful people with renewed minds, with true understanding, to be faithful ambassadors of Christ our Lord in all things. I thank you for each one here. I thank you for your mercy to each one. I thank you for the work of your spirit in renewing and enlivening and transforming. And help us to each be servants of that ministration to one another. Bless us as we finish out our worship, Father, and even in our our meal to come. May we be united together as sharers in Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.